It's the time of year when we're all thinking about goals and priorities. Now is the time to plan your next trip. Whatever kind of travel fills you up, whether it's lounging on the beach, connecting with family and friends, or going on a foreign adventure, Expedia has the tools you need to plan a great trip. Download the Expedia app or visit Expedia.com to start planning. You do need to be a OneKey member to use price tracking. Signing up is easy and free. Expedia, made to travel. We've all been there. You have a question about your credit card, you call the number for help, and can't get a hold of anyone. If you only had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right, a real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. Thank you for being here. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for being here. You know, I wanted you to be here after I read your book, Moment of Lift, because I had so many ahas personally reading it. I want to talk to you about that. But here's the real deal. Anytime you say your name, people immediately think money. They just think money's flowing out of your ears. It's everywhere. Um, and they think, oh, my God, your problems are not like anybody else's problems because you can pay for your problems to go away. Mm. And in this new book, uh, The Moment of Lift, great title by the way, you write on page 140 how great wealth can be very confusing. It can inflate and distort your sense of self, especially if you believe that money measures merit. Mm. So I just was curious as to how you get to be you sitting in the greatest wealth on earth and not be confused by um, money's measures and merit? Mm. Well, I think it probably comes from the fact that I grew up in a very middle-class family in Dallas, Texas, and we were working very hard. My parents were, and us as siblings, me and my three siblings, to, to have enough money to send the four of us kids to college. And we knew my dad's engineer salary wasn't going to pay for all of it. And so we had, um, they had a property, a real estate business, and we were cleaning ovens and cleaning out people's messes when they left over and running the finances. I kept the books. And I think growing up in that sort of middle-class family with this dream of going to college, you remember how important it is to get a great education. Like my parents were determined I would get a good education, but it set my values. I mean, that and my parents sent me to an all-girls Catholic high school. I kind of wanted to go to a different all-girls school that was more academic, but that, that social justice grounding I got in high school, it just helped me really wrestle with my values early. And yeah. then I would say, lastly, having three children you constantly have to be thinking, what am I teaching my children that I want them to live out in the world? And am I living my life that way by what I say and I do? And so it always, always, always goes back to your values. 
And so I just, I don't see myself as any different than anybody else. I'm this young girl who grew up in a middle-class family in Dallas, Texas. I know, but you're multi, 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 multi-billionaire. <laughs> and this is what's inter interesting to me that you find out in the moment of lift is that you hadn't even married yet. You were working at Microsoft. Mm -hmm. And Bill was your boss, ultimately, he was your boss. He wasn't your immediate boss, but he was ultimately your boss. You got engaged, and you're walking along the beach, and you all start talking about what to do with this great wealth. Yeah, and we both, because we both came from families who believed in giving back. My parents gave a lot of community service through the mm -hmm. church. Bill's family was very involved in philanthropy in Seattle. And we both just knew, so we'd never been to Africa before. In the fall of 1993, we were gonna get married subsequently in January of 94. We both went on our first trip to Africa. And we went because we were gonna do a, you know, which we did, a beautiful safari with other couples. We saw the animals, the planes, we loved it. But it really was something about the people that just touched us. And yeah. we just, I kept, we kept saying, you know, how can it be? How can it be that we can be in this nice vehicle or take a commercial flight home and yet people don't have basic things we have in the United States, clean water, a road. And so we knew, so we committed at the end of the trip, we had a beach walk some time off the coast in Africa. And we just, the more we talked, we knew we were gonna give the resources, the vast majority of the resources away. And so we committed ourselves that at some point, we would get going on doing that. So, you know, when you have so much money and there are so many problems in the world, it's really easy to get overwhelmed, mm -hmm. especially mm -hmm. in Africa. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's easy just to go and just throw your hands up because you don't even know where to begin because you don't know where to begin or even how to focus. How did you all focus? Yeah, and Africa, as you well know, yeah. and is many, many, many different countries with many cultures inside every country. But as we started to learn, we started to gather experts around us. Um, we started to think about, okay, first of all, what's the role of philanthropy? So all philanthropy can be is this catalytic wedge. We are not government. We cannot scale things up, even with our billions of dollars. You can't scale things up So, at that level. But we knew we could take risks and try things. And we knew that Bill and I, coming out of the tech sector, believed in the power of science and innovation to change the world. And so we very early hit on vaccines, that they would be one of the very best investments, that if you got a, a vaccine in a child arm in Africa, it literally would save their life. And when we started to learn about the vaccine system and that it was 20 to 25 years from when a vaccine came out in the United States or Europe till it got to Africa. So millions of kids are going to die in between. Literally millions were dying from needless things that we vaccinate our kids from. And so we started there with that simple idea. And once we felt like we could get going and, and start to make a difference there, we started to add on other pieces in global health over time. Because we have this belief that all, first of all, that all lives, all lives, no matter where they're lived in the world, have equal value. Mm -hmm. And if you can't start with great health, you don't even get to go on and have an education I, and reach your full potential. Yes, I love that as a fundamental vision, mission statement of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is that all lives have equal value. Oh. All lives have equal value. Now, there are so many staggering statistics in the moment of lift. I just want to share a few. More than 130 million girls around the world are still not in school. 40 million, is it 40 million women a year give birth without assistance. All of you in here who've had babies, imagine not no having assistance. a soul there with you. 
On average, women do seven years more of unpaid work than men over their lifetimes. From 2002 to 2012, there were more than 14 million child marriages per year. And we mean 10, 11, 12-year-olds getting married mm -hmm. around the world. The, one of the things that was most illuminating for me about the moment of lift is when I came across uh, with a, came away with this understanding of what it actually means to have family planning. Mm. Now, I've done lots of shows about family planning and contraceptives, but there is a moment when you were in line watching women line up, having walked for miles and miles and miles with their children for vaccines, and a woman is also coming hoping to get her contraceptives. And many times you arrive and the contraceptives have already run mm -hmm. out. It's the first time I thought, oh, what if you actually couldn't get them? Mm -hmm. When did this dawn on you that this contraception was it? Yeah, probably I had been out traveling, so I travel a lot for the foundation mm -hmm. to Southeast Asia, all these different countries in Africa, and I would often be out to talk to women about vaccines, women and men, about the difference of vaccines in their child, children's lives. But when I stayed long enough to have a real conversation in the village, women started bringing up to me over and over about contraceptives, and I was surprised they, A, knew so much about them, and B, they were Outrage. I mean, angry at me for good reason. They'd say, that clinic, that clinic right there, you can see it. I can get a child vaccine there, my child's vaccine. I cannot get my contraceptives anymore. And so I just kept going to all these places in the world and then this line. And so it was probably in about 2009, 2010, it just really dawned on me. It's we recent, have got actually. to figure this out. Yeah. It turns out there are 220 million women telling us they want access to contraceptives, the basic tools we use here in the United States, and we don't deliver those to those women. That, that's, that's a crime. And one of the things that you say is that, that really shook me is that there is no country in the last 50 years that has emerged from poverty without expanding access to contraceptives. Because when women can space their births by at least three years, each baby is twi twice as likely to survive their first year. Twice and you, as likely. Yes, and you, you, you related that to when you left Microsoft, said to your husband, Bill, I'm not coming back. I'm gonna stay at home. And you were able to space your children, mm -hmm. which was a choice mm -hmm. that you just took for granted mm -hmm. at the time. Yeah. And now recognizing that women throughout the world don't have that choice. Yeah, I was, first of all, I was lucky to be able to get pregnant, which some women aren't. But this, this ability to space the births of each of our children so that I could have time with each one. And, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly lucky. Look, I, I was born in the United States. I'm, I'm a white Caucasian woman with wealth, right? But there are women all over the world who will tell you it is a life and death crisis. I, I would be out in these villages and I'd say, I'd literally be out and you know, I'd have maybe 60 women around me. The men would be there first and they'd go back to the field. I've learned to let the men go back to the field eventually after we've talked and, and work. And talking then to the women and I'd say, if there's 60 women, so how many of you know somebody that's child in childbirth? And like three quarters of the hands would go up. How many of you know somebody or have lost a child in childbirth and all 
the hands would go up. And women would say to me, don't you understand? I had this one woman in Niger, Sadie, who was her name. She had five children and she had her youngest next to her, beautiful children. And she said to me, don't you understand? Don't you see? You see my small arid plot of land? It is not fair for me to have another child with these other children. I can hardly feed these children. And so this is a matter of life and death. And I have to be honest, when they, they first started telling me this, I almost, I, I, it, it, it broke my heart for one thing, but one, I kind of wanted to turn away from it. I go, no, 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 I'm, I'm here to talk about vaccines. I'm gonna go home and think about vaccines or some other things. But then I thought, no, 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 wait a minute. If I, for whatever reason, am in this situation where with Bill, we're getting to help put things on the global health agenda to try and help partners and the world and governments move forward, I have to face what women are truly telling me. And I also had to go look at the data, because when, when they were first telling me this, my husband is very data-oriented, which has been a huge gift. <laughs> but he'd say, but Melinda, contraceptives are stocked in. Well, sure enough, at the highest level, when you read the reports, contraceptives are stocked in because of HIV AIDS, but condoms are stocked in. And women all over the developing world have told me, I cannot negotiate a condom, even in my own marriage, because I'm either suggesting my husband has HIV AIDS and has been unfaithful, or I'm suggesting I might have HIV AIDS and I've been unfaithful. And so we weren't delivering the types of tools that women want and can use, and sometimes need to use covertly uh, from their husbands. The biggest thing women use in Africa is a shot, which is why when I would bring up vaccines, a shot in a child's arm, they'd say, what about my shot? Vipro-Provera, which was the main contraceptive tool being used in Africa. Thomas's presents Tackling Traffic with Tom. Good morrow. Tis your reminder to savour the morning with Thomas's breakfast. And while you may not be able to control what occurs on your commute, like your horse and buggy popping a wheel and axle on the way to the schoolhouse, you can control what you put atop your soft but crunchy bagel and the toastiness of your English muffin. So do take the time to savour the morning with Thomas's. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. It's the time of year when we're all thinking about goals and priorities. Now is the time to plan your next trip. Whatever kind of travel fills you up, whether it's lounging on the beach, connecting with family and friends, or going on a foreign adventure, Expedia has the tools you need to plan a great trip. Download the Expedia app or visit Expedia.com to start planning. You do need to be a OneKey member to use price tracking. Signing up is easy and free. Expedia, made to travel. And so you and Bill work really well together because he's very, very data-oriented, not to say that you're not, mm. but you like to apply that data on the ground, mm. correct? Mm. Yes. So I'd you're like in the houses, in women's homes, out on the field, working with them, literally with them saying, please take my baby. Yeah. Have you ever been tempted to say, all right, I'll take this one home? <laughs> <laughs> Bill, bringing home some more children. Yeah. That would be tough. That would be so tough. I, yes, I mean, your heart is so broken when a woman asks you. So when it, I have been in a situation... Tell a us about the first time a woman asked you to take <sighs> her child. Um, I was in northern India. Uh, I was visiting... Um, I was visiting a, a local health clinic that we had partly funded in northern India. And uh, a woman, young woman named Mina, she had two little boys. She had a newborn baby boy. She had gone to the health clinic, delivered us the baby safely, and I was home back in her village to talk with her about that delivery and see how it went. 
We talked at length about her, her delivery. It went well. She was breastfeeding her baby boy. She clearly loved him. I was just there as a Western woman, which I often am, in a pair of khaki pants and a white T-shirt. She didn't know who I was, was, where I was from, just from the West. And she knew I was there to learn about what else could be done. And uh, eventually, I turned the conversation to, I wanted to ask her about contraceptives and what she knew. And when I asked her, I started with, do you, would you like to have another child? And we'd been having this gorgeous conversation. And all of a sudden, she cast her eyes down for the longest time, and she wouldn't look at me. And I thought, OK, I've either made a social faux pas, or she doesn't understand. Or... And eventually, after a very long pause, she looked up at me, and she said, I can't have any more children. She said, I don't have any hope for these two children. I have no hope. I can't hardly feed these kids. My only hope is if you take my two boys home with you. And that conversation crushed me. It so, but crushed what did you me. do, though? What, do you, what did you do, Melinda? Somebody says, take my two boys. So what did you actually then say and do? I had to beg her for her forgiveness. And I just said, I just can't. You know, I, I'm sorry, but I, I can't. I have three children of my own at home. I know you love these boys. I, I, I can't. And it was... Are you tempted crushing. in that moment to say, here, let me give you some money or let me help you with a da-da-da, let me help you? Are you tempted? I think everybody's tempted to do yeah, that. Believe I, I've, me, I've I, would, I would love to give her, you know, right there, 1,000, yeah. 10,000 rupees, right? But if I, if I only lift up, we have to lift up everybody. I have to lift up individuals, but we also have to lift up millions of women. Mina's story that she had the courage to share with me is the story of hundreds of millions, millions of, of women. women. Yeah. And so these resources that Bill and I have, we have to put them to the best use to lift up hundreds of millions of men, women, and children, not just the one. And so in those situations, I often will go back to the NGO, the non-governmental yeah, organization yeah. who's working there, yes. and I will make sure the family gets a bit more resources, but I can't support them over their lifetime of what they need. I can hopefully give them enough that they can start to lift their family up a little bit. Because, yes, I've been in those situations where, and I know we all know the adage, you teach people to fish, you just don't give them fish. But sometimes when people are starving, they just need a fish. Mm -hmm. you know, they need something need, in their stomach that day. They just need something day. in their stomach yeah. that day. So how do you protect yourself from absorbing all of these kind of overwhelming problems on a grand scale and when you're meeting people in person and people wanting to hand you their children and save me, save me, save me, save me? Well, I think I've learned, I know I've learned over time that you have to spend time in quiet. You just have to. And... For me, um, after I've had one of these trips, I always, not sometimes, I always spend at least 24 hours in the place I've been or very nearby where I can be alone. Um, and literally decompress. Decompress and be out in nature, usually walk on a beach, just be alone because I write about this in the book. It's so important mm -hmm. to let the pain in, to let my heart actually break. break to not resist that pain. There's part of me that wants to go, oh, I didn't hear that, no. Yeah. But no, you have to let your heart break and you have to let it move through you and hopefully eventually metabolize so I don't put it on somebody else or, or, or my anger, because I'm, I'm outraged usually. After these trips, I also go through these moments of outrage and anger. But then by the time I come home, I need to come home and obviously tend to my family, 
But when I walk through the doors of the foundation, I have to think about what action is this calling me to? What action do I want to take on behalf of the world when I walk through these doors? I actually loved in the book when you said, let your heart break, because I recognize that I've been one of those people who wants to resist it. You want to push it away. You don't want to have to take it all in because like a lot of people, you feel like if I take it in, then I'm going to have to do something and what can I do? And I'm already helping people over here. But I think this notion of let your heart break and then make a decision about what you can do after the heartbreak is, is, is the way to carry the moment of lift it's, around the world. I think in a certain way, it's the only way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have to say it took me two years, two years to find the courage to answer the call of women asking me for contraceptives. Two years, I had to wrestle. I mean, after I'd heard it a lot, I had to wrestle, look at the data, but I had to wrestle with my conscience. I grew up Catholic. The Catholic Church tells you, thou shalt not use contraceptives. I was getting to that part. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, and I grew up, I am a Catholic. My family's Catholic, my parents. And so I had to wrestle with my own faith, what I had been taught growing up, and what I believe in, what I use. And I had to say to myself, no, wait a minute. My kids are spaced three years apart, obviously. I'm using contraceptives. And and I started to look at some data and say, okay, 90%, 90 plus percent of Catholic U.S. women use contraceptives. And women all over are asking me for this Why would I really let people die because of a religion I grew up in? And so it it became a wrestling with what do I actually believe of my Catholicism and what do I need to let go of? And then, okay, how do I summon the courage? Because I did not want to stand on stage and say, guess what? I use contraceptives. Um, guess what, you know, I have sex with my husband, I have three kids. I mean, but you have to be vulnerable and do that to have the courage on behalf of other women. And so, is that a turning point for you? Huge turning point. Huge. I, um, and I spent a lot of time in quiet during those two years. And not to say I don't go to the foundation, didn't work, didn't travel, didn't have kids, but a lot of time in quiet. And reading a lot of spiritual leaders who... Um, I know you're a big fan of Mark Nepo. Mark Nepo. We both love Mark Nepo, the I poet. Lo- Actually, I'm... you named the book after one of his poems, Moment of Lift. I did. I can explain that if you want. But the other, the person who helped me wrestle with my Catholicism was Father Richard Rohr. Listening to many, many, many of his lectures. I've done him on Superstar. I know you have, and I've okay. watched okay. And um, it helped me wrestle with that. And then I finally had to face my own sense of where do I have doubt in my life as a woman? What is that about? And then courage. And I finally came to this point of which, if I'm telling my kids to use their voice eventually in the world, to use whatever talents they have, am I using my voice in the world? Am I using it on behalf of women? And so I had to really look at that and say, I, I need to do this. And so in 2012, I helped build, again, a global coalition to raise money. We raised and I'd never done this before, raised, it was totally new to me, raised $2.6 billion 
um, on behalf of contraceptives. And we put something for Is the it hard first to raise time. money when your name is Melinda Gates? Yes. Because it, everybody thinks you, why don't you just spend your own money? Well, there's that. But again, I could spend down the foundation very quickly. $2.6 billion doesn't go as far as you'd think, right? So even with our own resources. But I'll tell you what's hard to raise money on behalf of is to go in and talk to a male government leader, which I do all the time, about why women's issues are important. And, and so now we've come around as a globe, but like when I would go show up at the UN 10 years ago, if you showed up at the UN, people weren't talking about girls. They were talking about women, some women, maternal yeah. mortality. They weren't talking about girls. They weren't talking about girls' education. And they certainly weren't talking about contraceptives for women. And so you have to help these global leaders understand how it will help these nations lift out of poverty. So what gives you hope that this power dynamic between men and women can or will change, particularly in developing countries throughout the world? What gives you hope that it will? It is changing. So it, it, it has a long way to go. You have to kind of go country by country. But when I see male leaders whether it's a traditional leader of a village, whether it's um, a local religious leader, whether it's Prime Minister Trudeau or President Macron, talking about women and being willing to fund it or being willing to make cultural change or to learn. Um, I talked to a, a religious leader in a village actually in Senegal and he said to me, you know, when you all come here and listen to us over many, many, many years, which a local NGO have been doing, but then you also listen to what we need and you bring in some knowledge. He said, we learn and grow. And that's, that's how we change. And is the process bringing in the men too? Because I don't know how you Absolutely. save the women without also talking to the men. Oh. Because in so many communities, villages, uh, and you know townships, the men are the ones who are in charge. Yes. So you have to go through the men to convince them that helping the women will make a difference in the entire community. Absolutely. And that they have to be willing to invest some resources in that. They have to be willing to change. I mean, let's be honest. It is still, men still hold the keys to power, even in the United States. <laughs> yes. And we, so men and boys, and there are many men, enlightened men and boys. I work with a lot of them. I love, I enjoy them. I love mm -hmm. them. They have to be part of this conversation. They have to be willing to give up some power. But, but if you talk to men about their children, men and women, whenever I ask them in these villages, what are your hopes and dreams for you? They always answer about their children. So when men start to understand that their children will be better off if their wife has less yeah. Uh, labor at home and more, a little bit more resources and a little bit more voice, they'll be willing to start making that change. I have found that also true for c convincing men why girls need to be educated, that your daughter is going to come back and serve the family, help the family, lift the family up. Every time you educate a girl, you really are educating someone who's going to help the entire community. Absolutely. Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. It's the time of year when we're all thinking about goals and priorities. Now is the time to plan your next trip. Whatever kind of travel fills you up, whether it's lounging on the beach, connecting with family and friends, or going on a foreign adventure, Expedia has the tools you need to plan a great trip. Download the Expedia app or visit Expedia.com to start planning. 
you do need to be a OneKey member to use price tracking. Signing up is easy and free. Expedia, made to travel. So on page 173, you say the starting point for human improvement is empathy. Everything flows from that. Empathy allows for listening, and listening leads to understanding. You later talk about this power of, like, connection, that the most important thing we can have as human beings with one another is not even equality, but a sense of connection to, to, to one another. So you believe that the supreme goal for the world is not just equality, but connection. And I agree with you. I think we're all so disconnected that we're all just kind of chipping away at our humanity. And it's the root cause of so many problems. How then do we here in America with our own set of issues and things going on in our own lives, our dailiness, create a moment of lift for these 220 million women who don't have contraceptives, for the 130 girls who still have yet to go to school. You say we are the lift, but how can I be the lift? I'm just trying to get my bills paid. <laughs> so first of all, you're absolutely right. I believe in connection, connection between human beings. And that connection creates empathy. And we start to understand, and we learn, and we grow through that. And so if you hear this global problem, and it sounds, oh, it's far away, it's huge, these big numbers. You have to remember, we all have our hearts, our intellects, our energy, our time, and our resources. Yeah. And you can apply those in any amounts you want, tiny amounts, big amounts. But what I tell people is just get connected. Understand what the issues are. Read about them. Connect with somebody else who's working on them. Decide you're going to volunteer time. Even in your own community, you'll see the difference that education makes in your own community for a girl. And whether it's even working in your community. Look, our U.S. school system's pretty broken. I'm out in the U.S. school system a lot, so you've been out quite a bit too. Yes. But when you start to do that work and you put drops in the bucket of connecting with people and understanding other people's lives, you start to see how you have personal talents that you can contribute. You know, the last conversation I had on air with, with uh, your husband uh, was about the broken school system. And he was saying, what, eight years ago on The Oprah Show, we still have this public school system that was created for kids going to school in 1954. Mm -hmm. And you all have spent millions and millions and millions of dollars to try to change it. Would you say you're moving the needle or is it still a broken system? It is still a broken system. And yet we will, not, we will never give up on the US school system. How does it feel when you've put millions and millions and millions of dollars into a thing and it doesn't still seem to work? You keep changing. You, you keep, keep figuring out. You keep listening more. You keep learning. You keep iterating. There are some things we have done that have helped in pockets, but not, they haven't been scaled up yet. And so you keep learning. It's like, it is a bit like running a business, which is you have a plan, a strategy. My strategy is great teacher in front of every kid in the United States. You do that, you will really start to change the school system. But you have to tack on course when you don't get there. And we're learning about, we're learning even more locally about what it takes to build consensus and what the people in the school building think they need. And once you support yeah, what the they need, yeah. then you start to grow um, and change a system. Twice here you mentioned raising your children and wanting to be the kind of person that can live an, an exemplified life before them. And I know your daughter is here. I often wonder, and I ask this not because you're one of the richest people on the planet Earth, but because <laughs> I also ask this of my friends who are who are just well off. How do you raise? How do you raise 
kids who are responsible and kind, who grow up with a sense of grace, and yet have their own ambition when they have access to literally everything. Mm. How do you do that? Well, I wouldn't, I would say it's purposeful over time. And again, I believe in putting lots of drops in the bucket and I, I wouldn't say I've gotten it right. My daughter, Jen, my oldest who's here would tell you I have, I've made mistakes too. But I think you constantly go back to your values. And Do our... you? Because when I was growing up, my mother, you know, we, we were poor. So when she said we couldn't afford it, I knew we couldn't afford it. Mm -hmm. You can never say we can't afford it. <laughs> but... That's true, and I wrestled with that with Jen, right, Jen? You can never say, you can't but have that, we can't afford because... it, put that down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And my, my, I got that message from my parents too, because we couldn't afford something. Yes. But just because you can, doesn't mean you should, right? So just because I could buy my daughter whatever, yeah. doesn't mean I should. Like, she doesn't learn if I just buy it from her or my son. And so our kids have always had an allowance growing up, and then thing, bigger things that they wanted that their allowance wouldn't pay for, they put on their Christmas list and might, or birthday list and they might get it off their wish list from us or a relative, or they might not get it. Um, but they started to learn the responsibility of money. And they know that our hope and our dream for them is to grow up and to find whatever it is they have. All kids have amazing potential and talent. And right. to use that talent on behalf of the world. Yeah. And I think one of the things... We, we have to be doing a good job to have enormous amounts of wealth and still have your kids grow up with their own ambition. Because I've also talked to people who say, well, what are you going to do? You can't get the kids to work. Mm. You know? <laughs> but I think our kids see Bill and I work very hard. We don't have to work anymore. I mean, but we do. We work hard every single day. Um, I mean, we take some vacations, so, you know, we take time off, but we work hard. And I think the other thing our kids see is they have been fortunate to travel a lot, both really nice travel, but they have been in and out of the developing world a lot too. And so they see, I mean, even from age 10, I started taking them out. They see how lucky they are. Lucky, yeah, yeah. not just to be in our family, lucky to have grown Jen, up in Jen's the shaking States. her head there, right? Yeah. yeah. Right? Yes. Because I think if you're a girl born in the United States, you're already one of the luckiest girls in the world. Absolutely. If you look at the rest of the world. Yes. I have to ask you this, though. As Melinda Gates, do you still look at the prices of things? <laughs> Depends on what it is. My husband actually memorizes the prices. If we go out to dinner and I'm taking a long time to order, and I'm like, how am I going to have the chicken or the fish or the steak? And he'll go, $19.95 for the chicken, you know, $39.95 for the steak. Not that he cares how much we spend on it, but he'll memorize the prices. So I sometimes just count on him. Really? <laughs> and can you ever, like, Gail, the other day we were someplace and she went shopping and she brought me this pocketbook she goes it was reg it was regularly like 1575 and i got it for a thousand dollars for you a thousand dollars i got i talked the guy out of 575 dollars <laughs> that's and fun I, and i'm like i'm like why are you negotiating in the store with the thing <laughs> if you're melinda gates you can't negotiate right <laughs> Well, my youngest daughter and I, the most recent store we've been in, she's 16, and she's spending her allowance. Uh, we were in Nordstrom Rack the other day, and we found, which is, you know, their lower price, and we found a lot of things for both her and I bought a few things. It was pretty great. On the you want good Rack. value. I don't care how much money you have. Absolutely. So you don't make New Year's resolutions, I hear. Instead, you choose a single word to bring your guidance for the year ahead. And some of your past words were, like, gentle, 
mm -hmm. right? To help you fight perfectionism. Another year I heard that your word was spacious, mm -hmm. okay? As a reminder to make room for things in your life. And in 2018, you chose the word grace mm -hmm. to signify that you're part of something bigger than yourself. So do you have a 2019 word? I do, and I have to say it feels very vulnerable to share this because until last year I hadn't shared that I had a word or what it was. Um, my word this year that came to me and uh, is shine. Ah. And um, look at you. Yeah, no, but it's not about me, and that's yeah. why I was a little bit. Again, I was kind of resistant when the word came, kind of mm -hmm. in November. It usually comes sometime in November, December, January. Um, but it's I, for me, what shine really means is that I believe. Every single person has a light inside of them. Every single person. And if we can turn those lights on, on behalf of women, on behalf of people who don't have as much, on behalf of minorities in our own country, we all turn our lights on and we stand up for what's right, we will break through all these barriers. And guess what? We will all shine. The world will shine. Mm. You call the book The Moment of Lift, and as I was saying earlier, you explained the phrase with a question, what takes us past uh, the tipping point when the forces pushing us up overpower the forces pulling us down and we're lifted from the earth and we're able to like literally fly? Mm -hmm. You say that we are the lift. So if I'm the person reading this, as I was saying earlier, how do I give lift when I'm just trying to keep myself on the ground? You look at moments for equality for yourself in your own marriage or your own relationship. You look for equality in your community. You look and push for equality in your workplace. And you also, if you're lucky enough to have some privilege, which even if, if you're born in the United States, you've already got privilege, you open up your networks. Like I have to look at myself and say, am I sponsoring other women and people of color for jobs? Am I holding a job open to make sure we have diversity of resumes, uh, diversity of interview candidates. You open your networks. I, I have networks because of just being white, right? And so am I making sure other people of color have access to those networks? Any single When did you get woke we like that, Melinda? It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty good. When did you get, when did you wake up to your access just because you were white? Uh, probably, probably in the last maybe five years. Yeah. It really has been watching other people and hearing what they're saying. And I listen. I listen really carefully to what individuals Because you know a lot of white people don't know that. This. I know. Yeah. I know. And they don't even understand. They just think that this is the way it is. They, they think when you talk about privilege, they just think, what do you talk about? Exactly. Yeah. And I think, but as I have seen all the ways women have held back, been held back, and I talk about in my book ways I was held back as a woman, Yes. and I start to think about lifting up women, I go, well, wait a minute, we got to do that. But it's a yes and. We have to do that and at the same time lift up people of color. Then you'll write society. Thank you, Melinda Gates. The book is a moment of lift. So empowering. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Oh. Thank you. Good job. That's so easy and wonderful. Really good I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening.
just in and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.